0: You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. We're going to do something different this week, Eric. We are. It's called Mailback. He's exciting. Yeah, I, I love it. <laughs> so. We get a lot of questions about ETFs in general, and people reach out on Twitter, on Instagram, on email, via the terminal. And we want to take a moment and just dedicate the rest of this show to a bunch of questions that people have about ETFs.
2: Yeah, we collected some of the questions. I sent a bigger group of questions that I've gotten to Joel. He added some, and Joel's essentially going to pick five or six of the ones that he likes, and we're going to try to answer them to
1: cover some areas that you're interested in. This time on Trillions, we ran out of ideas. Great question here from Kevin Baum at USCF. That's a school? No, it's actually a
2: ETF company. Oh. Ah. Yeah, so he's in the industry. I was going to say
1: University of Southern California. Florida. Yeah, okay, there you go. <laughs> it sounds like a 16 seat in the NCAA to- tournament. Totally. So here's Kevin Baum. Have you recently analyzed ETF launch size and the subsequent flows?
2: That's a good question and very specific. There really isn't much connection. There are ETFs that open. They come out with a couple hundred million dollars. We call those. That's bes- a big number. That's huge, right? That's bespoke. It's because issuers more and more want to line up like an anchor tenant in that mm-hmm. ETF. So there's a few examples, like the United Nations seeded the low carbon ETF with about 150 million dollars. Just literally, like here,
1: we want this to work. Here's some opening money.
2: Correct, and it has barely more than that four years later. So while it's profitable on that one anchor tenant, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work later. She is another one. Remember the global, the diversity ETF, uh, gender diversity ETF has 322 million. Almost all of that was seeded from Calsters. On the flip side, pension money. Yeah, that's um, yeah, pension money that looking to do that, and they didn't really, you know, beef up more after that. But having that money in there, you'd think might attract other people. In that case, it did not. Hmm. So organic flows usually it doesn't matter. Usually, what determines whether an ETF gets assets is. Whether it just starts to crush the index, like it just shoots right up and just it becomes too big to ignore. Yeah, the
1: outperformance. Yeah, the outperformance. Always do it, right?
2: The other thing that can attract people is if it comes in dirt cheap. Mm. Um, when something is so cheap, it just excites people. A good example is the Goldman Sachs um, multi-factor ETF GSLC. Mm. That's not a great ticker. The, the, the strategy is not that easy to understand, but it charges- nothing. 0.09%. Yeah. Nothing. So for a for a smart beta type strategy, that was like hugely cheap at the time yeah. and that thing has uh, a couple billion dollars.
1: And what's interesting about both of these though, the from a flows perspective is like it's sticky money. Right? It, it all this money is come in and it's stuck around. When ETFs are cheap, the money tends to be more sticky.
2: When the ones that they get money because they're high flyers and they have a good run like the robotics ETF when, when that event, when they inevitably crash, and they will, there'll be a time when they really underperform the indexes. They're probably going to see some outflows, but not all. So that money's less sticky, but not entirely not sticky. I'd say half is sticky. Some people, I think, forget
1: they bought it or they really believe in the idea. Kevin Baum at USCF, thanks for the question. Okay, nothing matters more to me than my retirement money. But one thing I know about my 401k is that it doesn't hold ETFs. Why is that? Good.
2: I get this question a lot, and the reason ETFs aren't in 401k plans is because a lot of the advantages that we all know about them don't really matter there, right? Mm. So I'll go over a couple here. Um, the tax efficiency—that doesn't matter because you're already buying. It's, pre- it's pre-tax. Yeah, dollars. it's pre-tax. Right. Um, you also don't need to intraday trade your 401k plan, so the trading. Please don't do that. Yeah, the liquidity kind of doesn't matter. And then you also have the cost issue, right? ETFs are dirt cheap. However, in a 401k plan, like, say, Bloomberg, we pull all our money together. We can afford the institutional class of a mutual fund, Mm. the I-class. That's almost as cheap as an ETF. Correct. ETFs ultimately are kind of priced at the institutional class level. Mm. Where the 401k market, where you're going to see the shift is you're going to see index funds take over. And then the other thing is, there's some um, technical accounting issues with buying fractional shares. I won't get into the weeds, but the idea that if you put money in all the time and when you go to buy a mutual fund, there is no bid-ask spread, mm-hmm. whereas an ETF, you have to buy at that spread. So you could argue that dripping and dripping and dripping money into an ETF could cost you more than on the mutual fund side. But on, outside of a 401k plan, an ETF will blow away uh, a mutual fund. But that's why the 401k plan is essentially the mutual fund's Alamo. Because they're like protected that. there, yep. right? ETFs can't really get in. They're trapped. You know, they're, they're fighting for their life there. I love the Alamo metaphor. That was a good one.
1: Have you been? It's quite small. It's funny. I I grew up in Texas, but I never went. Yeah, yeah. Also, that Alamo story didn't work out so well in the end. <laughs> That's why I use the metaphor. Okay, came up just a couple seconds ago. You said something that I want to ask you about. Bid ask spread. I don't think we've actually really addressed that one. What is bid ask spread? Bid ask spread is
2: essentially the the round trip toll for uh, trading an ETF. The difference between what you can what they'll sell and buy for because they're making a market. And usually for most ETFs, there's a penny difference, mm. right? So if you bought like say SPY, you buy it at say a hundred dollars and one cent, but when you go to sell it, you have to sell it for a hundred dollars even. Right, are losing a penny. You're losing a penny, and that is what the middlemen make for making the market. Mm. So it's very tiny. And if you take that penny and divide by the, the price of the ETF, you're talking about 0.01% in cost. Mm-hmm. But that's important. But if you do that all the time and you're trading all the time, it can add up. And if you go to less liquid ETFs, you may trade and may, may be four or five basis points. Right, because it'll have the, a bigger bid-ask spread, right? Yeah, so just look at the bid-ask uh, spread as the uh, tiny, tiny little cut that the middlemen get for making a market in in the stocks and
1: ETFs. Here's a great question. Super meta. What's the best-performing ETF of all time? So we actually just looked at this. Uh,
2: it's interesting. If There's two categories there's including leveraged ETFs, right? And there's ones without. So we'll start with the whole enchilada, right? 2,100 ETFs. What's the best performing ETF of all time? You, and did the, you
1: crunched this on the terminal.
2: We did, yeah. And the answer to that question is TECL. What? T E? It's up nearly 5,000% since wow. it came out. It's it, the triple leveraged tech. Triple leveraged tech, of course. And the thing with leverage is if something goes up in a nice, steady pattern the daily leverage when it resets every day it compounds mm. so that's why it, leverage etfs are path dependent if it were volatile you wouldn't see that but tech has had a nice nice run since this came out when was that it came out in 2008 so it yeah. came out right at the bottom yeah so ten,
1: over 10 years it's up 5000%
2: yes that blows away everybody so that's number one if you take away leverage which is sort of like you know steroids you know, and just going with like clean play, mm-hmm. the best performing ETF is MDY, which is the spider midcap. Um, and what's interesting about MDY, it has a big head start. It came out in '95 as the second ETF launched. But MDY is midcaps, and it, we, you know we talked about them being the Jan Brady mm-hmm. of the yeah. of the stock market because they're overlooked. MDY, since it launched, is up twelve hundred and fifty five percent. Now, if you take the large caps during that same time period, they're up seven hundred percent. If you take small caps, that are up 745%. In other words, mid caps almost doubled. Wow. That is a crazy stat to me. I was shocked by that. Yeah. Something to consider when you're investing in the stock market. A lot of people like broad market strategies, which include mid caps. But if you go just large... You know, you're kind of missing out on that.
1: So I kinda of, what I what I like about this though too is that the leverage speaks to like the steroid era of baseball, right? Yeah, that's Barry Bonds. Yeah, it's Barry Bonds. This is like Mike Trout. Well, I, well, I would go with uh Roger Maris. Okay, all right, Roger Maris. Yeah. That's there you go. You can have your contemporary, you can have your classic. <laughs> there, there you go.
0: go.
1: <laughs> so Eric, one thing that people always ask about is um public companies, right? Because an ETF basically you're only investing in public markets but if you look at the data over the past you know 15 years or whatever a there's fewer public companies overall and b there's fewer and fewer companies actually going public so is there an option for investors to actually engage in private markets via ETFs not directly no is the
2: answer and this is probably why i think you know hedge funds and and other parts of finance are always going to have a, a home because ETFs can only track what's publicly available. However, with that said, I've heard a few arguments recently and I'll, I'll throw out some options, surrogates, microcap stocks have been argued as a close thing to private equity because these mm. are companies that are smaller, no analyst coverage, they don't their financial strength is lower.
1: How small are we talking with a the microcap?
2: These are companies with market cap of 50 million to about 300 million. And what's interesting about microcaps is there is uh, like there's a couple microcap ETFs. IWC for my shares is the biggest one. It holds a thousand stocks. And I looked, if you take the broad market ETF like VTI, which holds or, you know, three thousand. Large, mid, small, ninety-nine percent of the market cap, it barely has any micro-cap. So there's a thousand stocks out there that are not even in the broad ones. Thing is, those thousand stocks together only equal one to two percent of the entire market. That said, nobody's really buying or getting exposure to these 1,000 stocks. I think that's just interesting alone, that there's a 1,000 companies that almost nobody owns Mm because microcap ETFs have, I don't know, around a billion, maybe less. Um, So that's one option for people who might want to just get to companies that are closer to the private stage. Another option is there's an ETF called BUY. This is an ETF that's uh, synthetically trying to get you private equity returns by looking for companies that have those attributes. So it's Hmm. sort of like the microcap model, except it's going out for mid, small, and just looking at companies that have similar attributes and trying to basically replicate the private equity through public equity. Interesting. One caveat, that one's pretty expensive. Just be careful. It doesn't trade a lot. It's very new. Just a caveat on buy. Whereas the microcap ETFs have a long track. I think they're all about 10 years old, um, and they're a little more liquid in terms of trading volume. Um, The third way is there's a private equity ETF that tracks private equity companies that are publicly listed. In other words, like KKR. Mm-hmm. These are companies that ma- yeah, they manage private equity funds. This is a way to invest in them. However, you're going to get a lot more exposure to things that are not private equity, like just general macro movements, the Fed. Those kind of things will push around these big stocks just as much as their revenues. So it's, it's almost like playing equity. Uh, or energy stocks through XLE when you want oil. I think there is some disconnect there. So it's these are all imperfect ways, but there are just some options out there, I think, if people are really on the hunt for something that's private equity-esque.
1: So, Eric, there's this plan called marijuana. I've heard of it. It's kind of popular in I've... some places. It's even becoming legal. You know, there's medical marijuana, there's recreational marijuana, which more and more states are adopting. And there's an entire country just to the north called Canada. Canada is in the process of legalizing recreational marijuana. So what's going to happen with ETFs and marijuana? Popular question. In fact, I don't just get this on Twitter, but when I traveled
2: around, people would ask me, people internal here uh, who just have jobs doing whatever have said, hey, is there a pot ETF? I think they sense that they want to get in on this early. And they want an ETF because it diversifies, because they don't want to go around trying to pick one of these pot stocks. They're very small. They could blow up. There's a, a lot of uh, risk. Volatility. Yes. And so a pot ETF basically cuts that risk in half. So the, there's a couple marijuana ETFs. Only in half? So it takes, basically, if you take the volatility of the average stock mm-hmm. in, say, the Canadian pot ETF or the one in the US, the ETF has half the vol as the, of the average stock. Which makes sense, right? Because you're sort of, through that diversification, you do cut your single stock vol in half. And people like that uh, as a way to play, because believe me, it's volatile enough. The pot ETF is about five times the volatile of the S&P. So you can imagine one of these stocks could be 10 times.
1: So these ETFs already exist. What are the
2: tickers? The one in Canada that came out first, Canada leads the U.S. a lot in new ETF launches. Their regulators are very liberal. Uh, HMMJ is the ticker in Canada. HMMJ? M M J. Yeah, the tickers aren't that great. You'd mm. think they're better. Mm-hmm. I you got think, some Mary Jane in there, though. I think issuers didn't want to like do a touchdown dance after they got approval and mm-hmm. like rub it in or make it more. Um, because I think the regulators were a little like uh, not thrilled with mm-hmm. uh, letting ETFs out like this, either in Canada or the U.S. What's the U.S. ticker? The U.S. ticker is M J. Just M J. M J. Which is a little more obvious, I think. Yeah, totally. Um. I, can, I think I can, of Michael Jordan and Michael Jackson. You can think that way. And the guy who created it thought differently. <laughs> but there is one in registration with the ticker TOKE, which is pretty good. <laughs> That's yeah. Verb tickers are the best, yeah. and that one is a good one. So MJ is the one in the U.S. Now, there's a big difference. The U.S. one holds more U.S. stocks and has a little more filler. The one in Canada, I think, is more of a pure play and holds 80% Canadian stocks. The Canadian pot companies are the ones that have done way better because it's it's pushing it's moving along faster there and Ken Shea of Bloomberg Intelligence gave me some really compelling numbers on the marijuana industry. If you look the sales last year in Canada were six hundred million dollars, hmm. but they're projected to go in a year and a half to five
1: billion That's so, what legalization does
2: yes, half medicinal half recreational, so it's the recreational market that's the big driver, and that's five billion that I mentioned in Canada. That uh, other companies predict a little higher, like Deutsche Bank, I believe, it says seven billion. Globally, it's twenty billion. And recently, I was in Canada at the Inside ETFs Canada conference, and one of the panels they do, which I'm involved with, is six or seven ETF analysts get up on stage, and they all have to argue for what the best new launch was. It's sort of a rap battle for ETF analysts. And the Tell one me I-
1: that you were involved in a rap battle.
2: I was, (laughs) except it's ETF analysis that I'm throwing down, you know, and then the audience votes. No, there's no beat, but I have PowerPoint slides. So what I showed was I showed, what do you think of when I say marijuana? I showed pictures of, you know, um, Grateful Dead concert, Pineapple Express, Cheech and Chong. And I said, this is what most people think of. But then I showed the bar chart of the growth. This could be what you should think of when you think of this industry. The question is how much more can it go up, right? HMMJ is up 160% in the past 12 months. Mm -hmm. The argument back after I laid down my case for it, the argument back because you got a rebuttal, they came back was well, a lot of people, this isn't new. People know this is growing. The price to earnings ratio are extremely high. It's like sort of the same argument for like internet stocks in the late 90s. about this one?
1: It could all go up in
2: smoke. That's pretty good. (laughs) Uh, Obvious, but good. (laughs) (laughs) So, I didn't win. I came in, I think, second, but third based on the audience uh, sort of applause meter. I feel,
1: I feel like this is a, consi- a consistent thing. Like you end up in these showdowns and you don't take home the gold. Yeah, but last – the one I did before, I was sixth. So I'm moving up. I think I'm going <laughs> to take
2: it next time around. Up the ladder, All right. Yes, because uh, I realize it's not really the ticker or the validity of the ETF. It's the show. Whoever just puts on the best show, and so I've raised my performance this time and got higher on the ladder. If you anyway, want some
1: coaching, let me know. I will.
2: So you can invest in pot ETFs. Uh, AMJ is the one in the U.S. HMMJ is the one in Canada. What does the U.S. one hold? It's it's a mixture of Canada and U.S. stocks. It's got mid and small caps. Uh, again, I asked Ken Shea to look at the holdings. He said, well, about 75, 70% of it is sort of directly linked to cannabis sales, but like one company in there, I think Scott's miracle Grow is in the ETF. That Clearly, pot is not a huge, but it you know they are working in the industry. The question is, as the industry gets a little more, uh, get bigger, they will give more weight to the pure play companies. But when a, a new industry or theme ETF starts, they kind of have to fill it out with some uh, bigger liquid names to make the basket actually liquid.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Put a little shake in your doobie. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ.
1: everybody hates paying taxes, and we know that ETFs have some tax benefits. Joe Panino at Panino LLC asks, can you do an analysis of the tax efficiency of ETFs versus mutual funds versus hedge funds? Right. The data
2: is, is tough to crunch on this, but Morningstar actually did an analysis. I'll give them credit for this. If you look at the ETF capital gains distributions over time, it's almost the perfect record. It almost looks like a picture. No hits, no runs, no error. It just look almost like a perfect game. There's occasions where they will distribute a capital gains, but it's so rare. Um, and that's what people like about ETFs. It's a big, I'd put it top five attribute, is the fact that you don't get taxed for, do, for just sitting there. In a mutual fund, you can. If a big investor were to leave the mutual fund, the manager has to cash them out. How do they do that? They sell some of the stocks. That's a taxable event. And you sit there in the fund, you get a distribution. And- ETFs do not have that. You still get taxed when you sell it, but you don't get taxed just for doing like a bystander kind Mm -hmm. of tax. Huge deal, ETFs, almost no capital gains distributions across their life. Mutual funds, big problem. And he also asked about hedge funds. So how do do hedge funds stack up? Same deal with the mutual funds. The thing is a lot of people who are in hedge funds are endowments, pensions who are going pre-tax. All of what I just said, only involves in after-tax money, Mm -hmm. which brings us back to this idea that if you put an ETF, a mutual fund, a hedge fund in a level playing field after tax, ETF almost always going to win that
1: battle. Oh, I like this one from at Stan, the MF man. (laughs) It's a great handle. No no comment. Uh, He asked. I I don't think it's mutual fund manned. Mm, no comment. Uh, here, here's what he asks: What are your thoughts on index provider selection, like MSCI versus FTSE? This is a great question, and it's huge. You
2: really should look at the index. The index is the thing. Most people just look at the issuer now and the cost and the exposure. You know, in MSCI versus FTSE is a great example. People usually bring up the emerging markets MSCI has South Korea in there at about a 15% weight. FTSE doesn't. They consider South Korea a a developed market. Mm -hmm. So if you were going and using MSCI, which is the iShares version for your international, you should use them as a set at least Mm -hmm. because the developed and emerging will be in line. If you used one or the other, you might have extra or no South Korea. So you really should think about that. And that's why some people do like to use indexes sort of together for their broad exposure. I do think that looking at the index though, ultimately comes leads back to looking at the holdings, the weightings, which we always talk about. How is it weighted? So it's
1: not that indifferent than looking at the exposure, but it is important. But this is, you know, it's really important because uh, it's about what you're going to buy, right? And like, say China is an interesting one. There's been a lot of conversation about when China's in an index, when it isn't in an an index. For instance, there's um, an ETF, uh, EMM, right? Which notice it was created by a guy who basically was like, I want China exposure, and I'm not getting it anywhere else because of the way the indexes are structured. Right, which brings us to the
2: fact that there's a lot of new formed independent indexes and what's called self-indexing. Because when you have an ETF, you have to pay MSCI and, and FTSE if you want to license and that's a index. a yes. And it goes into your basis points. So what you're going to find more and more is self-indexing. Even the big guys, I think, are going to start to wean off of the big brand names and just do it themselves. I think there's a couple exceptions. S&P 500, MSCI Emerging Markets, these are rock stars. They're almost bigger than the ETF. But outside of a couple rock star indexes, a lot of the indexes are not that big of a deal. I've seen an index get switched by an issuer, and the flows don't change because uh, there are surveys that show advisors and retail in particular really are looking, they think the brand name of the issuer is more important than the brand name of the index, and they trust the you know those names more.
1: Which is that's a really phenomenal shift. Totally right, Be- because those the indexes have been forever the behemoths. Institutional
2: money typically is more focused on the index. They are benchmarked to the MSCI, and they they're way more into that. So that's why it's important on institutional for institutional clients to have that MSCI or FTSE. But for retail. I think more and more they just don't care. They'll just look to the issuer. Oh, it's BlackRock. It's State Street. It's Vanguard. I, you know, I I trust the name. I don't really. They don't even look.
1: What's an example of somebody who's been self-indexing lately?
2: Wisdom Tree started it. They only they make their own indexes and then track them. But BlackRock, for the first time ever, self-indexed two bond ETFs. And I would look. That's major to me because they've never done that before, and they're major. Um, and then you have other companies that have started to come out with uh, Goldman Sachs. The ETF we mentioned earlier, GSLC. Goldman made that index and now is tracking it. And that's ultimately what you'll find more and more with big, active mutual fund companies. They're going to take their active secret sauce, turn it into an index that's their own index, and then have an ETF tracking it.
1: Okay, so here's probably the most basic question that a listener could ask. And I love it, which is, what's the best ETF for the long term?
2: Ooh, that that is a tough question. And I do get asked this here and there, and I I can't give investment advice. Like, that's that's against the rules for me. But what I can do is I can point you to an article I wrote and something I I captured in my book. And it's not one ETF, but it's two ETFs. And I call it the Buffett special. Warren Buffett, in one of his letters to investors, his famous letter, said, one of the investors asked him, what should I invest in? So he basically pointed to his will and what he's going to do with his fortune after he passes away. And he said to his wife, take my fortune, put 90% of it into an S&P 500 index fund, preferably from Vanguard, and then take the other 10% and put it into short-term treasury bills. So you could do that with two ETFs very easily and very cheaply. You can do it with, say, VU, that's the Vanguard S&P 500, that's five basis points cost, or IVV, the iShares is even cheaper at four. Then you could do 90% there, and then you could do 10% into SHY or SHV, which is just short-term treasury bills and I think their expense ratio on that might be ten or eleven basis points mm-hmm. so if you all in you're talking about five or six basis points for your Buffett special portfolio mm-hmm. and he claims that portfolio will outperform all of the professionals all of the institutions I back tested it and it does you look at the average endowment versus that the Buffett special does win it'll obviously have times when it might not be as well but over the long term you know it's hard to go against Warren Buffett so well, I can't recommend an ETF, I can point you to what he said and then fill in the two ETFs to sort of play out
1: his recommendation. I think I'm going to walk over and figure out where I do this, but put in a little holder for a Buffett special ticker. That sounds like a good idea.
2: Yeah, using his name. I th- I'm not sure I, the SEC gotta, would I be I hot. i some
1: royalties on that one, I'm guessing. One thing I'm really proud about with this podcast is we have a great review on iTunes. Have you seen that? Like, It's like four and a half stars. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, no, we're getting a lot of good and good star comments. ratings. And yeah. a few comments and that, mostly good comments. There's <laughs> a, a couple other comments though too that I want that we want to talk about.
2: Yeah, so the the ones that are hey, you're doing a great job. Love the insight. You know, you love to hear that. Um, normally, I don't even re- read reviews, but uh, I somebody. Oh, told, you're
1: you're like that, huh? Yeah,
2: I don't because if you buy into the good ones, you kind of have to buy into the mm-hmm, bad ones. And yep. so I d- I did read them though, and I want to address too because I think other people may feel this way. One guy says that. I feel like I'm getting sponsored content spoon-fed to me. Mm. Um I I'm a fan of ETFs, however, it's not all roses. There are downsides that need to be addressed, right? So here's the thing. Yes, it's it's sponsored, but you know, everything's sponsored in the media. First of all, we are we are vetting ETFs properly here. And we did a whole episode on the traffic light. I mean, we went over 10 things that could be nasty surprises in ETFs. We tried to do the warts and all, but here's the thing. ETFs are really good. They probably deserve more credit than critique, and that's why the flows are so strong. Money goes where it's treated best. If we were really going to be spoon feeding or like working for the man, we'd probably be trying to get people to stay in active mutual funds because it makes a ton more revenue. So, I, I don't really agree
1: with that, but I understand kind of why he's saying it. And, but you know, and we're not sponsored content. Like, we, there's an advertisement at the front of the show. That's it. Right. You got one more that has been uh, sticking with you a little bit. We want to talk about it.
2: Yeah. This guy who, by the way, I looked up, he hasn't written a positive review about anything on iTunes. Okay. Mm. So he's kind of a nasty guy, but I, I hear what he's saying. He goes, um, do you also, do you like pop culture references? We too love pop culture and give you two minutes of filler for every actual minute of ETF information. <laughs> so I get that. There's been a couple episodes. I'm where guessing ha- he
1: does not like the squeaky wheel.
2: <laughs> yeah. <he does> <laughs> <not>. <laughs> <laughs> or my police Academy yeah. reference afterwards. Here's the thing, um, I do a lot of premium content on the terminal and the TV show I do is much more for it, you know, advisors and professionals. This is purposely for people living outside of the financial bubble. There are plenty of PhD type podcasts where they talk to each other for each other. This isn't that. We're trying. To, we're trying to make it relaxing, fun, normalize and, it. Yeah, and and also give you the information in a way that isn't like we're teaching a class so it's by design I'm okay getting that
1: but alright look on occasion maybe we go a little too far down the 80's rabbit hole the the best uh, critique I got on that front was um, a listener who said if I wanted Radiohead I would have had a Radiohead podcast there really should be a Radiohead podcast I, I would you know we I, should I, well, I know I you're re- going to volunteer yourself we can pitch it I can hear the response already <laughs>
2: Yeah, the Radiohead one was probably the most far out we've gone. But look, we're trying to, we're hanging out with you for 25 minutes. It's oddly intimate.
1: It is. I enjoy being intimate with you, Eric. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Trillions is produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg podcasts.
0: Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at invesco.com QQQ. at QatarEconomicForum.com